0: All right, so we're starting this new series about encountering God. A year ago, we had Roy Godwin and Daphne Godwin from Founder Brennan in Wales come and spend a day with us, and Roy brought a word to us, which was, wake up, wake up, because he rightly perceived, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we were spiritually slumbering. And um, some of you will have heard me say several times over, that's not a word that we can yet put to one side and say, yay, we're wide awake, it's all fine now. There's still an ongoing response that God is calling us to become more awake to him. That's why this autumn we're going to look again and again at characters in the Bible who had encounters with God. Uh, most of them were asleep to the possibility of a relationship with God or an encounter with him when then they met him and everything in life was changed as a result. I want to recommend one book, especially for this morning, but that you might like to read through the term. When Bev was reading this book, I have to say, I first of all dismissed it. And it was partly because of something I knew about something that someone connected to the author had once said, which was a bit harsh And on reflection, I realized it might be more to do with the fact that it's got a big pink flower on the front. And I thought I probably wasn't the intended reader. Maybe it was aimed at someone different to me. Probably someone in a publishing house somewhere didn't have me in mind when they put that cover on it. But it's a book called God Space by Christine Sein. The subtitle is Time for Peace in the Rhythms of Life. And it's actually brilliant at getting us to think through how we find... And make room for God in the everyday of life. That's going to come out in what I say this morning, especially. We can think of encounters with God that are very much the mountaintop, things we look back to you know, many years. I can remember my 19th birthday, a joint churches meeting in St. Oldate's when the Holy Spirit was moving afresh in a new way. What became known as the Toronto Blessing had a powerful encounter with God. It changed me. Those moments matter. But actually, the regular rhythms and patterns of encounter with God matter just as much, perhaps even more. And this book will help us to think about that. So I'm recommending that book. But this morning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 and 3. I'm clicking, aren't I? And the title is Walking with God. If you have a Bible, do find the beginning and then turn on a page or so. It's quite a long chunk of story that we're going to look at this morning, and I'm going to read it in several bits, in four different scenes of the story. And these first few chapters of Genesis are rich with content. There are a hundred different sermons that could be preached from these verses. I could preach a sermon on work, or or on marriage. I was quite tempted to say something about marriage this morning, having yesterday celebrated my parents-in-law's 50th wedding anniversary, which was brilliant. And there's a sermon to preach. I could teach about the theology of original sin, the Adamic covenant, for those of you that like that sort of thing. could draw comparisons with the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 and talk about questions of evolution and human origins. But I'm actually going to be disciplined to focus on what is the most important topic in these verses, which is walking with God. It stands head and shoulders above all of those things as the most important. So let's start reading Genesis chapter 2 and from verse 4, the first scene. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he'd formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, when you eat of it, you will surely die. God breathed life into man. This first scene is a story of the creation of Adam, made from the dust of the earth, and then, as, is Amy still in? Where's Amy gone? Her picture this morning about doing the kids, okay, with tiny tots breathing life in, coming to life. God makes Adam. He also made an incredible place for Adam to live. An incredible place. And we might miss some of the feel of this place as it would have sounded to the people that first knew this story. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of gold. Maybe it's wedding rings or something like that. But to the people that first knew this story, gold and aromatic resins spoke of one particular place. The tabernacle or the temple. That's where there was an accumulation of gold and aromatic resins formed incense that rose up. Gold... And precious stones, aromatic resins, spoke, reminded people of the presence of God. They will have seen those things when they went to worship and to encounter God. These rivers that go everywhere and trees that spring up full of fruit, remind us of Ezekiel's vision of the temple of the river that came out from under the altar, and where it flowed, life came. There's a similar thing in Revelation 22, where the Apostle John, towards the end of this glorious vision, says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river stood... The tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. These descriptions of the Garden of Eden, there's many things that could be described about this place in the story. But the things that are highlighted for us, that we know with confidence, are things that tell us that God was there. Later on, we'll read how God came and walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, who's yet to be made. God was present with Adam in the garden. God made Adam in his own image, as it says in Genesis 1. He put his breath in him and they lived together. They lived together. What was Adam like? I don't know how you imagine Adam. One of my favorite authors from Christian history is a a man called Thomas Boston, who was a Scot, and wrote this 300 years ago. In Adam was a very glorious creature. We have reason to suppose that as Moses' face shone when he came down from the mountain, so Adam had a very lightsome and pleasant countenance and beautiful body, while as yet... There was no darkness of sin in him at all. Light shone in his holy life to the glory of the creator. Every action was a ray of glorious unmixed light which God had set up in his soul. A lamp of love lighted from heaven burned in his heart. There was no impurity in him, no squint look in his eyes after any unclean thing. The tongue spoke nothing but the language of heaven, and in a word, the king's son was all glorious. So, what Adam was like in uh, the language that we would use today. We might pick another phrase to describe what things were like for Adam in the garden. We might say that he was plugged in. Out of his relationship with God, the image of God in him was constantly sustained. Um, Adrienne's word to us this morning said, As we worship, God's polishing up his image in us. Adam was made in God's image to begin with, what stopped that image getting tarnished and dulled was that he was constantly in God's presence. He was in relationship with God. We might say he was plugged in to God. God's life and power was flowing in him. And whatever glory came with God's nature, with being in the image of God... Adam then shone with a radiance that reflected God's glory because he was plugged in to God. Uh, Many of you know that some years ago I did a PhD and uh, it was on cockroaches. Um, (laughs) At one point, see, I, I have cared more about individual cockroaches than you ever will. At one point, there was one... Because I was, I was investigating their feeding, what they chose to eat. And I had little boxes with all of these cockroaches in, and I had to weigh them and find out how much they'd eaten. And this was like... This took a long time. And I had one day, one of this little, little cockroach, just a little kind of juvenile one, escaped off the edge of the table. And for me, that... Cockroach was not just something to say good riddance to, that was a data point. That actually, it was a whole data series that was just about to be taken out of my data set, which is, you know, it's bad. Anyway, Meryn will understand the statistics. You want a large sample size. So, So I prayed. I said, Dear Lord, I know you care about me. I don't know if you care about this cockroach or the experiment, but I do. Please help. At which point, the same cockroach, I knew it was the same one, it was the same size, I'd been looking at it clearly, I wasn't to be mistaken, came up over the edge of the table, walked into the middle of the table, and stood still and stopped. There. Which is not normal behaviour. And I was able to collect it again, and I thanked the Lord for that. Um, What we're about to read in the story is that Adam had every kind of creature come before him, tamely, quietly, to be named by him. And I felt, well, like when this little cockroach walked into the middle of the table, I felt like the mighty man of God, (laughs) I have to say. I was like, prayer works! Adam plugged into God just anything in creation, Will come before him tamely and quietly. It says that it's God who brought the animals before Adam. It was God that brought the cockroach onto the table. I didn't do it. But in relationship with God, see, in Genesis 1, it says that we are made to rule the world for God, we're his ambassadors. Actually, better to say we're his viceroys in the world. We're here to rule the world. Adam, plugged into God, could do it, radiating God's glory. Many of us, if we're honest, live on the dregs of an earlier encounter with God. We're hugely grateful to be able to look back and say, I had this encounter with God. This is what changed in me and in my life. I had this encounter with God and I saw something i never seen before. But we're not meant to live on batteries that were once charged up. It's not how we're designed. We're meant to live plugged into the mains. So the first scene was to do with Creation, how it's meant to be. Second scene, we'll move on to, is to do with companionship. I'm returning to the Lego brick Bible. I have to say, preparing a PowerPoint, looking for images about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, I just decided I'd search the one page and just take everything I needed from it and not go any further. So if you think my images are a bit peculiar, it's because I'm trying to remain righteous. The rest of... Chapter 2 says, The Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the beasts of the air. Sorry. ooh, that'll be interesting. Beasts of the field and all of the birds of the air mm, uh, brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. As I said, I could say a huge amount here about marriage. We could note the intimacy of Adam and Eve's covenant relationship. We could note, and probably should note in passing, that they weren't merely friends, but one flesh. We don't tend to use that phrase, one flesh, in Britain today, except in the context of marriage. We would talk about being flesh and blood. And the difference, there's a difference between friendship, good, however good it may be, and family, where it's a flesh and blood relationship. But the main thing for us to note today is simply that as we're looking at walking with God, that Adam's walk with God didn't just work for him as an isolated individual. It wasn't enough for him that he could walk with God day by day by day. And it wasn't that he complained, but that God said, I've got something even better for you for each one of us, we know that God loves us individually. It matters that we have our own walk with God, but then again, you can never walk alone, because it turns out that God loves quite a few other people too, and he wants to introduce at least some of them to you, to walk with you. It's interesting that in John 15, where Jesus talks, the clearest place that he teaches about what it is to be connected to him, to be plugged into him. He talks about himself as the vine and us as the branches, connected in for life and fruitfulness. He says this, "'As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love.'" I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. And my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, remain in me, as Keith was saying to us as we kicked off our worship last week, linger, dwell in me. How do you do that? By obeying my commands. And what is Jesus' command to us? Love one another. You must have your own walk with God, but you can never walk alone. Companionship. Scene three, I'd like to suggest to you, has a lot to do with control. Let's read it. Chapter three and verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, "'Where are you?' He answered, "'I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid.' Because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate It's a very tragic moment in scripture. And people sometimes look to it, of course, to try to point the finger a bit more one way or another, wanting to know exactly where to allocate the most blame. Why have I chosen the word control, other than of course it the other things began with C, creation. And what was the other one? Companionship control. Well, that, you know, it was one reason, but actually, is what I want to say too. You see, sometimes people read this story, interpreting it to mean that God wants to keep us ignorant. That God would rather have stupid and easy-to-control people, whereas if we gained knowledge... That would somehow make things more difficult for him, and he'd rather not. Coming back to what Adrienne shared with us in our worship this morning, in Colossians 3.10, which she read to us, it talks about the new self, the Christian life. In the new self, uh, we are renewed in knowledge in the image of our creator. So let's put these things together. We're made, it's men and women, in the image of God. And here in Colossians 3, it says that to be made in the image of God is to have knowledge. It's not that God wants to work in our lives to get us to a place of increasing ignorance. Far from it. Rather, as we become more and more like Jesus, we actually get to know more and more. And for Adam, likewise, and Eve alongside him, for them in their pristine relationship with God at the start, they knew a whole load of stuff. Let's go back to the animals for a moment. We went punting last Saturday, and I thought I'd seen an otter. And we were all very excited. We punted up from the Charwell Boathouse up past the Victoria Arms and tried to get out beyond the Ring Road, but ended up getting engaged. What we thought was an otter, I posted on Facebook, we saw an otter, It's was very exciting. Jeremy rightly said, if you ever want to know anything about animals, don't be deceived by the fact that I have a PhD in zoology. Always talk to Jeremy because he knows so much more than I ever will. And uh, he said, actually, it's almost certainly a mink around there. Probably And I. And I thought of the mental image I had of what I'd seen, and I thought, oh, you're all right. So there I am. I have a PhD in zoology, and I can't tell the difference between a mink and an otter. I can tell male and female cockroaches apart, and roughly how old they are. <laughs> but I couldn't tell the difference between a mink and an otter. And here's Adam... Here's Adam. He has every creature, everyone come before him, and he names them. He knows what they all are. He sees what they are. See, in the ancient world, names weren't just a sort of label you stuck on something because it had to go in a box. They defined identity. And Adam, he knew what to call everything. So he was very knowledgeable, not even surpassed by Solomon in all of his wisdom. But the critical thing is where he got the knowledge from. Let me show you a little contrast here. You see, there are two ways in the modern world where we might get knowledge of the journey ahead of us. One is we might look very happily, look very happy, but be very happy because we've got a map. I have to say that, that no couple with a map and a car <laughs> have ever looked like that. <laughs> Still. Especially by the time they've got out and put it on the bonnet of the car. <laughs> by that point it's definitely lost. But nonetheless, one mode of of knowing things is we've got the we've got all the information in front of us. We have what we need. We can work it out from there. But of course, many of us today rely instead on some gizmo. SatNav, or even just on our phones nowadays, which will tell us what, where to go. It's actually a bit better because it will often tell us where the traffic is, it'll tell us how long it's going to take to get there, calculate alternative routes, you know, when we get lost, all of those things. Uh, but it needs a signal. And that's a really good illustration of the difference between these two ways of knowing that were available to Adam and Eve. They had, if you like, the signal. They were plugged in to relationship with God, and when they wanted to know something, they said, uh, God need to know something, and He was walking with them, and everything they needed to know, he would let them know. Again, Adam didn't know what to call everything just because he was super brainy. It was because he knew God. God was walking with him providing him with all he needed for every task that came before him. Most of us, though, would rather, you know, it's one thing to have a sat-nav for the journey that you go on, but, I mean, a lot of us would still like to have a road atlas in the car in case, you know, you run out of a you know, mobile phone signal or whatever. And in life generally, you know, however much we might like to get revelation from God from time to time, we're actually quite... We find more security in having knowledge anyway, aside from God. And that's what was going on for Eve and for Adam. When Eve saw the fruit and saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom, what she saw was an opportunity to acquire knowledge without reference to God. And she thought, oh, that sounds good won't have to rely on God anymore. And there's a little thing that it would be very easy to miss in what went on here. Because the serpent is very shrewd, very crafty, and says a number of things that would lead you in the wrong direction. Here's one of them. I don't know whether you noticed that all the way through the story, God is described as the Lord God that's what the narrator of the story says all the way through the lord god was walking in the garden the lord god formed adam from the dust of the earth but the serpent just says god now that might not seem very significant but those two words they mean slightly different things god was the word used in all of the ancient world to refer to simply one who's powerful perhaps you know the most high god the most powerful but it just makes a statement of the power of God. The Lord, Yahweh, was the name that was revealed by God to his covenant people in relationship with them. When they came close, when Moses came close and said, so what are you called? Getting to know you We're in relationship, what are you called? And he said, Yahweh, well, I am who I am is thing that's, Hard to translate, but we know his name, we call his name today Yahweh, Jehovah, as it's sometimes been said. And that gets translated in the Old Testament as that word Lord in capital letters. So all the way through the story, the story says, the Lord God, God who is powerful, but the God that we're in relationship with. And the serpent comes along and says, No, but did God say? And Eve, in her reply, mirrors what he said. You, um, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say the Lord has been lost along the way. She's not referring to God anymore as someone with whom you'd have a relationship, but just to, as a source of power that's out there some way, somewhere. And so I know that in the Christian life, what I should do is very simply pray and obey. It should be as simple as that. I have some need, I pray, whatever I hear from God, I then obey. The problem is that I find I don't trust him enough. And when he's spoken, I don't find it in me to obey him. Because I'm not quite sure how it's going to work out. And actually, that makes me sometimes even hesitant to pray. Because I know that as soon as I pray, he'll start speaking to me and say something that I might not trust him to do. And I'm just setting myself up for a fall You know, therefore, if there's a roadmap way of doing this first, let's check it out that way and only when that doesn't work and only when I get really stuck will I check if there's a signal and start to ask God with all of the richness but risk that it feels can go along with that. So our anxiety... Our struggle to really trust God obstructs our obedience. And that obstructs our praying. The basic issue is, do we want to live in relationship with God? Really. Do we want to live in relationship with God? Given that, he does insist on taking the steering wheel of our lives. You know, we... we, we don't get the option of inviting him to sit in the passenger seat whilst we decide where to go. That would be quite silly, wouldn't it, really? So, Lord of all creation, me, who's the better driver? And yet, because we struggle to trust him, we're hesitant to swap seats and... Often as not, it feels like life would just be easier if we left him out of the car. You're looking at me as if you're astonished that anyone would ever think that way. Which is always a surefire sign that I'm hitting home, so that's good. Um, do we really want to live in relationship with God? Or, if we're honest, would we rather not be in control of our own lives for ourselves? Well, let's go on to the fourth scene because it ought to help us as we make that decision. The story, as we're about to read it, goes on to say that a life disconnected from God is one of pain, death, frustration, and confusion. There's a little steer there as to what the good answer is to the question of whether or not we want to be connected with God. So it goes on to say this the Lord God. Said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed to you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will get your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, And to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This fourth scene is a scene of catastrophe The relationship that was intended has been broken. Adam and Eve have turned away from God. When He came walking in the garden, they turned away from Him, but now turned away from His glorious radiance. They're cursed. We read that Adam and Eve were no longer able to do that which they were made for. Genesis 1. Verses 26 to 28, the commission given to Adam and Eve is to be fruitful, to increase in number, and to subdue the earth. Those things are now beyond them. Sorry. Those things are now difficult for them. Whereas they were once easy things, those things are difficult. And we have all experienced that sort of difficulty. Some of you find work immensely difficult. Some of you find family life tremendously difficult. The answer, the only possible answer to these things is not just some moment of encounter in which everything is miraculously healed, but a walk with God in which we plug into him afresh and start to see his life flowing into ours. The Victorian church leader J.B. Meyer said, all activity and work must emanate from a real and close relationship with our Saviour. All activity and work must emanate from a real and close friendship with our Saviour. The power of God himself radiates through the people that are connected to him. A person who is connected to Jesus does more real good than a great number of others who are merely better gifted or better trained. You cannot give out unless there are times for the intake of love and power through fellowship with the Holy Spirit. When Adam and Eve disconnected themselves from God, their days became numbered, their work became frustrating, their relationship became strained and their family life became painful. So, to sum up, if we're honest, most of us wish that life worked like this. We wish that we could shine with love and life all by ourselves. But it doesn't work that way. We need to be plugged in. I'd like to remind us all of something we started a year ago. I'm going to wave this for the umpteenth time, and I'm sure we'll do it many more times still. A year ago, the leaders of this church recognized that over the years we've been better at having sort of moments of mountaintop encounter. Let's have three days of prayer and fasting and a big prayer meeting at the end. You know, someone's in trouble, let's fast and pray. And, you know, that, you know, events where we really feel the presence of God. And that's great. I believe in all of that. But that we'd neglected, in comparison, the daily pattern of waking up with an awareness of the presence of God. Praying over breakfast. Taking time at lunch, not just to eat at your desk, but to remember God. Praying the Lord's Prayer together in the middle of the day. Not merely saying a word of grace as a matter of habit for your evening meal, but pausing to ask what's gone on in people's days. And taking time really to pray about what's going on as part of a pattern of life. We wrote all that up in here. Breathe, an invitation to a closer walk with God. It encourages us to take on that pattern of breakfast, lunchtime, evening prayer. And from those who've done it have found that God's come in afresh. There are some of these leaflets at the back in the little carousel there. If you've not got one already, I want to invite you as the, the most important response to all of this stuff we've seen in Genesis To make a fresh commitment to walk with God every day, not just looking for the mountaintop experience, but finding God in the everyday.